0: Quality information should just not be the preserve of the elite.
1: We threw away one of the most important negotiating levers. There is no time to waste. The future is in your hands. Make it bright.
0: This is Westpod with Shoshana Zuboff. The Warwick Economic Summit.
1: The Warwick Warwick Economic Summit.
0: Warwick Economic Summit. Hello and welcome to the WestPod, the podcast developed and delivered by the Warwick Economic Summit team. The Warwick Economic Summit, or WES, is the largest student-run economics conference in Europe, having celebrated our 20th edition of the forum in February. Continuing the 20-year legacy and its aim of hosting, delivering, and sparking conversation, we are launching the WestPod. In order to share the lively debates and enthralling conversations, each week we will be releasing discussions from world leading figures on various issues. We begin this series with Shoshana Zuboff, writer, activist, and professor at Harvard Business School. Zuboff is the author of three major books, each of which signaled the start of a new epoch in technological society. Her recent masterwork, the Age of Surveillance Capitalism has been hailed as the tech industry's silent spring and the Das Capital of the twenty first century. We are delighted to host her talk which focuses on and exposes the dominance of large corporations and the data they collect. You can find more information about the summit, new releases, and more content on our social media, which are linked in the show notes. Without further ado, here is Shoshana Zuboff on Surveillance Capitalism.
1: It's, um, it's an honor. I'm, I'm very proud to uh, take part in this tradition of the Warwick Economic Summit, uh, especially because this institution deepens my belief in today's young people, in you and your generation, that you are worthy to meet the challenges of resistance and renewal that will define your lives. So to begin with, for all of the students involved in organizing this grand summit, and for all of those who listen to these words from near and far, I want to begin with an apology. According to most accounts, it was British data scientist, Clive Humby, who first declared, quote, data is the new oil in the year 2006 while working with Tesco of all things on a new database consumer loyalty program. There was a nice sense of symmetry there an easy playful nod to the distinct hallmarks of wealth creation in two centuries, but also a diamond hard edge. Data marks and historic era, it said, a world-changing driver of wealth and growth. Now, 15 years later, I am here to apologize to you for the profound truth of Humby's statement as the summary of my generation's destructive legacy. Oil was extracted from the earth, and in the absence of public comprehension and law, its uncontrolled use plunged the earth into irreversible peril, along with everything that we cherish. Data is extracted from humanity and in the absence of public comprehension and law, it's uncontrolled use promises to plunge humanity itself into irreversible peril. And with it, everything that we cherish, including democracy. In the case of fossil fuels, our nemesis, was never oil itself, but the extractors, the corporate institutions that concealed their own scientists research findings on the harms of fossil fuel consumption, conducted global campaigns of disinformation and generally placed the defense of their narrow economic self-interest above the interests of the Earth and its life above your family and mine above all bonds of community, society, civilization, and species. Similarly today, our nemesis is not and could never be data or technology, but rather the extractors, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, to name only the largest, along with their complex, far-reaching ecosystems these corporate institutions pioneered a new economic logic of extraction with a dark and startling twist they target human nature as their virgin forest or unblemished mountainside unilaterally claiming private human experience as free raw material for datafication computation production and sales i have called these economics surveillance capitalism because they depend upon hidden extraction mechanisms that operate outside human awareness designed as inscrutable and relying on the social relations of the one-way mirror to rob us of the right to combat. Surveillance capitalists have also concealed their research findings on the harms of their operations for people and society, they, too, deny reality and engage in global strategies of gaslighting and bamboozlement. And they, too, place the defense of their narrow economic self-interest above the interests of individual sovereignty, social solidarity and most pointedly of democracy itself. In the years leading up to the tragedy of 9-11, In my country, there were many regulators and legislators who had begun a serious debate on federal privacy legislation that would have taken aim at the young Internet companies and prohibited most of the practices that came to define surveillance capitalism. After the September attacks, the US Congress abruptly turned from this debate to a preoccupation with what became known as total information awareness. The new mania turned the young companies and their innovative surveillance practices into objects of intense fascination rather than targets for criminalization. Legal scholars explained that while the US constitution inhibited surveillance by government actors, there were few if any privacy protections for information held in private servers. The intelligence community would have to rely on private enterprise to collect and generate information for it in order to bypass constitutional, legal, and regulatory constraints. The revolutionary roots of surveillance capitalism are planted in this unwritten political doctrine that I call surveillance exceptionalism. Bypassing democratic oversight and essentially granting the new internet companies a license to steal human experience, render it as behavioral data, and then turn around and declare those data as their private property. This extractive economic logic quickly hijacked the digital and what had been imagined as a coming golden age of data and the democratization of knowledge, leaving us instead with a new big problem to solve. Like so many of you, my children are in their 20s. And so you can imagine that I say this to you from my heart. I feel morally compelled to apologize for burdening you with these challenges. We cannot outlaw global warming, but we can outlaw surveillance capitalism and reclaim the promise that has been sidelined in favor of its revenues. Anything made by people can be unmade. Nothing is inevitable. And in this year of 2021, there are already signs of the necessary antidotes in view. I am optimistic that we can reclaim the digital century for a thriving, joyful, prosperous and democratic future, but your action will be essential. So for the next little bit, I want to talk to you about surveillance capitalism as a revolutionary institution. You know, I've spent the last 42 years studying the rise of the digital as a political economic force. One that drives our transformation into an information civilization. Over these last two decades, I've observed the once young internet companies morph into surveillance empires powered by global architectures of behavioral monitoring, analysis, targeting, and prediction. On the strength of their surveillance capabilities and for the sake of their surveillance profits, the new empires engineered a fundamentally anti-democratic epistemic coup. What is an epistemic coup? It means a revolutionary takeover of what is known, how it is known, and who can know it. In an information civilization, societies are defined by questions of knowledge. How is it distributed? What is the authority that governs that distribution? What is the power that protects that authority? I reduce these to three essential questions, easy for you to remember. Who knows? Who decides who knows? Who decides who decides who knows? Knowledge, authority, and power. Surveillance capitalists right now hold the answers to each question, though we did not elect them to govern. This is the essence of the epistemic coup. They claim the authority to decide who knows by asserting ownership rights over our personal information. And they defend that authority with the absolute power to control critical information systems and infrastructures. The epistemic coup proceeds in four stages, each stage developing the conditions for the one that follows. The coup begins with the secret unilateral appropriation of epistemic rights, which lays the illegitimate foundation for all that follows. What are epistemic rights? During most of the modern age, citizens of democratic societies have regarded personal experience as inseparable from the individual, inalienable. It follows that the right to know about one's own personal experience has been considered an elemental right, bonded to each of us like a shadow. We each decide if and how our experience is shared, with whom and for what purpose. Writing in 1967, The U.S. Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas argued that according to America's Bill of Rights, quote, the individual should have the freedom to select for himself, himself, the time and circumstances when he will share his secrets with others and decide the extent of that sharing. All right, so this freedom to select is the elemental epistemic right to know ourselves. This right is the cause from which all privacy flows. For example, Amazon. Amazon has uh, recently boasted in a, in a um, press release that its facial recognition system can now, it gleefully uh, announced, can now recognize fear in our faces. And now fear joins about eight other emotions that its facial recognition facial recognition system can recognize. Okay, as the natural bearer of elemental epistemic rights, I do not grant Amazon's facial recognition system the right to know and exploit my fear for targeting and behavioral predictions that benefit others' commercial aims. It's not simply that my feelings are not for sale, it's that my feelings are unsaleable because they are inalienable. Nevertheless, though I do not grant Amazon knowledge of my fear, they take that knowledge from me anyway. Surveillance capitalism begins with this secret unilateral extraction behavioral data drawn from private human experience. But as the Amazon example suggests, only a fraction of what they take from us is what we knowingly give. Their operations are geared toward harvesting behavioral signals with surprising predictive power, the stoop of your shoulders, whether you use exclamation points, your micro expressions, Most of these exist outside of our awareness and therefore beyond our choice to give or conceal, which again, this is why it's called surveillance capitalism. Google founder Larry Page ruminated on this breakthrough in 2001, explaining that the firm's business was not actually search. When asked if Google had a category, he replied, quote, if Google had a category, it would be personal information. People will generate enormous amounts of data. Everything you have ever heard or seen or experienced will become searchable. Personal information is the stolen treasure and surveillance is the getaway car. The entire economic edifice is built on this bed of sand. These behavioral data flows are then piped through complex supply chains to computational factories called artificial intelligence, where they are analyzed and manufactured into predictions of human behavior. Facebook's AI hub, we have learned from uh, leaked documents, is described as ingesting trillions of data points every day and producing six million behavioral predictions every second. Ultimately, these predictions are sold to business customers in markets that trade in these human futures. These markets began with targeted online advertising, but now comprise many forms of exchange far from those roots. Surveillance economics were invented at Google migrated to Facebook, became essential to the growth of the other giants and then the default economic paradigm of the tech sector. But these days there is hardly any industry that is exempt. Surveillance economics travel through the normal economy in sectors like education, health, insurance, real estate, retail, finance, every product that begins with the word smart, every service that begins with the word personalized. The second stage of the epistemic coup builds on this first. It is marked, as you might deduce, by a sharp rise in epistemic inequality, defined as the difference between what I can know and what can be known about me. The license to steal produces this wholly new access of social inequality, institutionalized now in unprecedented concentrations not just of economic power but of knowledge itself citizens of democratic societies are turned into bystanders as surveillance capitalism builds its knowledge empires from our lives in stage three which we are living through now we discover epistemic chaos in this stage those unprecedented concentrations of knowledge are analyzed and modeled, producing powerful new capabilities that boomerang back to the source with a range of targeting mechanisms that can influence, manipulate, and even shape behaviors in ways that increase engagement in order to expand and accelerate ever more predictive data extraction. In other words, this is where knowledge becomes power. These methods produce epistemic chaos with profit-driven targeting and algorithmic amplification of corrupt information, much of it produced by coordinated schemes of disinformation. To understand the economics of epistemic chaos, it's important to know that surveillance capitalism's operations have no formal interest in facts. Massive scale extraction is a relentless economic imperative. And as a result of that, all data must be welcomed. They are welcomed as equivalent, even though all data are not equal. Extraction operations proceed with the discipline of the cyclops, voraciously consuming everything it can see, but radically, radically indifferent to meaning, sense, and truth. This indifference is baked into the cake. For example, in 2017, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt acknowledge Google's role in spreading misinformation, citing the algorithmic ranking operations and the machine's inability to identify corrupt information. Here's what he said, quote, there is a line we really cannot cross. It is very difficult for us to understand truth. Now, I want you to think about this. Here's the largest data company. Its mission is to organize and make accessible the world's information. And yet it cannot tell the difference between a truth and a lie. This failure, though devastating for our societies, does not impede its success. On the contrary, it is essential to its success. Look, in a leaked memo, a Facebook executive named Andrew Bosworth describes the same structural disregard for truth and meaning baked into the cake. He says, quote, we connect people. That can be a good thing if they make it positive. Maybe someone finds love. That can be bad if they make it negative. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack. The ugly truth is that Anything that allows us to connect more people more often is a de facto good. Make no mistake, growth tactics are how we got here. We still wouldn't be half of our size without pushing the envelope on growth. Pushing the envelope means that these compulsions are so great that the extraction imperative cannot decline a single morsel of data. In other words, asking a surveillance extractor to reject content is like asking a coal mining operation to discard containers of coal because it's too dirty. This is why content moderation at a place like Facebook is a last resort. You need to think of it as a kind of public uh, public relations operation in the spirit of ExxonMobil's uh, much-discussed, social responsibility messaging. The extraction imperative combines with radical indifference to produce systems that ceaselessly escalate the scale of engagement, but at the same time do not care and cannot care what engages you. These are the institutional conditions in which the most inflammatory content and the most corrupt information are honored as force multipliers of extraction and accessorized with a range of targeting algorithms and vaulted to the center stage of social discourse. Internal research at Facebook presented in 2016 and 2017 demonstrated causal links between these algorithmic targeting mechanisms and epistemic chaos. One study concluded that the company's algorithms were responsible for the viral spread of divisive content that fueled the growth of German extremist groups. They could literally see it happening. And they could also see that their own recommendation tools accounted for 64% of what are euphemistically referred to as, quote, extremist group joins dynamics that are not unique to Germany, but have been documented in many countries, including my own. Another internal study found that most corrupt information originates in a very small group of hyperpartisan, hyperactive users. They're literally posting 24 seven, including lots of bots and trolls, and their frequent posting is algorithmically rewarded, turning them into super spreaders of toxic content. Look, Facebook knows these things absolutely. And its founder has repeatedly rejected Proposals from his own teams to modify these mechanisms. Furthermore, intentional campaigns of political disinformation also understand these conditions absolutely and have learned how to exploit the cyclops' blind side to achieve maximum impact. The Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2018 helped the world begin to grasp that Facebook's political advertising is simply a leasing operation in which politicians, oligarchs, anybody with the will and the wallet can rent its suite of targeting capabilities, simply pivoting a few degrees from commercial to political objectives. Epistemic chaos is not an abstraction, my friends. It fundamentally disfigures real life and real death. Among the many important studies of the role that epistemic chaos has played in the pandemic, I'll cite just three right now. First, a study released in May in Britain, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. It identified a core group of 34 extremist right-wing websites disseminating COVID disinformation. As a result of the mechanisms I've described, between January and April of last year, 2020, public Facebook posts linking to those websites garnered 80 million interactions, while posts linking to the WHO's website received about 6.2 million interactions. And the Centers for Disease Control received 6.4 million, and a Voss study released in August 2020 exposed 82 websites spreading COVID disinformation, reaching a peak of nearly half a billion Facebook views in the month of April. That month, the 10 most popular websites drawn from those 84 websites, the top 10 drew about 300 million Facebook views, including posts that were tagged with warnings by fact checkers. And this compared with only 70 million for the 10 leading health institutions. There was no shortage of good information about COVID on Facebook that month of April, but the conclusion was from these researchers that Facebook's own half-hearted content moderation efforts were simply no match for its robust, relentless machine systems engineered for epistemic chaos. In October, a report from the National Center for Disaster Preparedness, Columbia University, estimated the number of avoidable COVID deaths in the United States. At the time of the study, more than 217,000 Americans had died of COVID. Tragically, the analysis concluded that at least a 130,000 of those deaths, at let me, let me say this slowly and carefully, at least 130,000 of those deaths and as many, as 200,000 of those deaths could have been avoided. Avoidable death. They cited four key reasons for these avoidable deaths and the details of each one. From the failure to mandate face masks to the politicization of information, reflect the central role of epistemic chaos in this tragedy. The world turned to social media in search of information and instead entered a political economic institution defined by lethal strategies of epistemic chaos for profit. All right, think about this, Cornell researchers just in October concluded that about 40% of that lethal disinformation circulating online originated with one super spreader named Trump. Yet it was not until the Capitol Hill insurrection on January 6, 2021, as the U.S. death toll climbed inexorably toward half a million people, that first Twitter and later Facebook moved to block his access to the global information bloodstream and to deprive him of surveillance capitalism's first-class algorithmic amenities of amplification and dissemination at the speed of light. Some have criticized these corporate decisions as violations of free speech. And indeed, the surveillance capitalists would have us believe that epistemic chaos is the inevitable price that societies must pay for the cherished rights to freedom of speech. I say no to this. Just as catastrophic levels of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere are the consequence of burning fossil fuels, epistemic chaos is the consequence of surveillance capitalism's bedrock commercial operations and cannot be justified with a cynical and vulgar salute to freedom of speech. In 1966, Two extraordinary scholars, Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman, wrote a short book of seminal importance called The Social Construction of Reality. And friends, if you haven't read it, you should. Its central observation is that, quote, all societies are constructions in the face of chaos, unquote. The ongoing miracle of social order that keeps chaos at bay rests on what they call common sense knowledge. And by that, they mean the knowledge that we share with others in the normal self-evident routines of everyday life. This everyday life is what we experience as reality and its existence depends upon our active and perpetual construction. All right. I want you to think about traffic. Everybody understands that there are not enough police officers on planet Earth to ensure that every single intersection, every car stops at a red light. And yet we go through intersections and not every time that we do so do we have to get out of the car and engage in a negotiation or worse yet, a fight. That's because in orderly societies, We all agree that red lights have the authority to make us stop and green lights are authorized to let us go. This common sense means that we each act on what we all know, trusting that others will too. And this is how we're not just obeying laws, we are creating order together. Our reward is to live in a world where mostly we get to where we are going and home again. And we do so safely because we can trust our common sense. No society is viable without this. Like baseball. I don't know if there are any baseball fans in the audience today, but baseball is like an everyday reality where we adventure out, but we also know that every adventure must begin and end on home base where we are safe. No society can police everything all the time, least of all a democratic society. A healthy society rests on a consensus about what is a deviation and what is normal. What's home base and what's the outfield? For example, many people love car racing from Formula One to NASCAR. It's thrilling to witness the speed at the track, but no one wants it in their neighborhood where the kids are playing and you walk your dog. The two can coexist in the same society because we all agree that the speed at the track is a special case an aberration from the reality of everyday life. We agree that the margin is subordinate to the center. And without that shared common sense, things fall apart. Society renews itself, and it renews itself as common sense evolves. For example, the idea of democracy itself was at one time a deviation from the norm. And that deviation ultimately became a force for renewal. Not all deviations are sources of renewal, however. Destructive or regressive deviations normally remain at the fringe and that's where they belong. As a democratic people, we need to be able to distinguish between deviations that advance or threaten our fundamental values and aspirations. This requires trustworthy, transparent, respectful institutions of social discourse, especially when we disagree. Instead, we are saddled with the opposite. Nearly 20 years into a world dominated by an institution that operates as a chaos machine for hire in which norm violation is actually good for business. In America, those who hold freedom of speech as a sacred right often look to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in a 1919 dissenting opinion that became very famous. There, Holmes argued that according to the American constitution, quote, The ultimate societal good is best reached by the free trade in ideas. The best test of the truth, he said, is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market of ideas, unquote, a free and fair public square. The problem is that surveillance capitalism's anti social media is not a public square, but a private one, governed by machine operations and their economic imperatives, incapable of and disinterested in distinguishing truth from lies or renewal from destruction. The corrupt information that dominates the private square does not rise to the top of a free and fair competition of ideas. Corruption is vaulted to center stage in a rigged game where the house always wins. No democracy can survive this game. This brings us to the fourth stage of the epistemic coup epistemic dominance. Epistemic chaos prepares the ground for dominance by splintering society and weakening democratic institutions. Dominance means the growing displacement of democratic governance with computational governance. The machines know, the systems decide, directed and sustained by the authority of private capital and its absolute technical power. For now, I want you to think about this. The intolerable truth of our current condition is that America and the many liberal democracies have ceded the ownership and operation of all things digital to the political economics of private surveillance capital. And this institution now vies with democracy over the fundamental rights and legal principles that define our social order in this century. So the question is, what can we do? I want to begin with a brief thought experiment. This is something I want each of you to do in your heads. It only takes a moment. I want you to imagine a 20th century without federal laws to regulate child labor or to assert standards for workers' wages, hours, and safety. No workers' rights to join a union, strike, or bargain collectively. An absence of consumer rights. No no consumer rights to make sure that we can get safe medicines and safe food. And no governmental institutions to oversee the laws and policies intended to make the industrial century safe for democracy. Instead, each company was left to decide for itself what rights would it recognize, what policies and practices would it deploy, and how would its profits be distributed? The result? The glories of the democratic public sphere never came to be. Only a dark, dusty century of oligarchy and serfdom. Fortunately, these rights, laws, and institutions did exist, invented by citizens and lawmakers over decades and across the world's democracies. As important as those extraordinary 20th and even late 19th century inventions remain, they do not and cannot protect us from the 21st century harms of the epistemic coup and its unprecedented assaults on individuals societies and democracies this deficit reflects a larger pattern the world's liberal democracies have thus far failed to construct A coherent political vision of a digital century that advances democratic values, advances democratic principles and the form of government that in which only a democracy can thrive. While the Chinese have, at least since 2010, intentionally designed and deployed digital technologies to advance their own system of authoritarian rule. And their strategies have been central to their domestic and their foreign policies. But in contrast, the West has remained compromised and ambivalent. This failure, this failure of imagination, of institution building and of law has left a void where democracy should be. And the dangerous result has been a two decade drift toward private systems of surveillance and behavioral control outside the rule of law, outside of democratic governance. The consequence is that we, the people, march naked now into the third decade of our century without the new charters of rights, the legal frameworks, the institutional forms necessary to ensure a digital future that is compatible with the aspirations of a democratic people. This is not a pronouncement of doom, but it is a call to action. We are a young information civilization that has not yet found its footing in democracy. Our time is comparable to the early era of industrialization when factory owners had all the power their property rights privileged above all else. This third decade is now our opportunity to match the ingenuity and determination of our 20th century forebears by building the foundations for a democratic digital century. Democracy is under the kind of siege that only democracy can end. If we are to defeat the epistemic coup, then democracy must be the protagonist. This will not occur, my friends, unless you and your generation are mobilized. Make no mistake, this is the fight for the soul of our information civilization. In closing, I want to introduce briefly three principles that we can carry with us into this third decade to guide our principles of action and the direction that we take for rights and law and governance three principles the first is that the democratic rule of law must govern the digital must live in democracy's house not as an arsonist, but as a member of the family, subject to and thriving on its laws and values. This shift is already underway in Europe and even now in the US. The second principle is that new legal rights are crystallized in response to the changing conditions of life. A democratic information civilization cannot progress without charters of epistemic rights that protect citizens from the massive scale invasion and theft compelled by surveillance capitalism's economic imperatives. Our elemental epistemic rights are not codified in law because they've never come under systemic threat any more than we have laws to protect our rights to stand up or sit down or yawn. But the surveillance capitalists have declared their right to know our lives and now the once taken for granted rights to know and to decide who knows about us must be codified in law and protected by democratic institutions if they are to exist at all and finally the third principle unprecedented harms will demand unprecedented solutions just as new conditions of life reveal the need for new rights the harms of the epistemic who require purpose built solutions. Most discussions now focus on downstream arguments, things like data privacy, accessibility, portability, or on schemes to uh, buy our acquiescence with uh, paying us for data. Downstream is where we argue about things like uh, content moderation and filter bubbles, where we all stamp our feet at the executives and say, You have to do this. Downstream is where the companies want us to be. They want us to be so consumed in the details of the property contract that we forget the real issue. And that issue is that their property claim itself is illegitimate. The principle here is that we need to go upstream to supply, to end the data collection operations of commercial surveillance. We need legal frameworks that interrupt and outlaw the massive scale extraction of human experience. Instead, we need laws that tie data collection to fundamental rights and data use to public service, addressing the genuine needs of people and communities. Data must no longer be the means of information warfare waged on the innocent and we can disrupt the financial incentives that reward surveillance economics, prohibiting the commercial practices associated with the sale and purchase of human futures, and all commercial practices that exert demand for rapacious data collection. Democratic societies have outlawed markets that trade in human organs and babies. Markets that trade in human beings were outlawed even when they supported whole economies we can outlaw markets that trade in human futures and drive these financial incentives. Final comment, the US Supreme Court justice, Louis Brandeis, who served from 1916 to 1939, um, was a, a champion of economic equality. There are two sentences that were often attributed to him Though it turns out he didn't actually write them, they were written in homage after his death. But they read like this, quote, we must make our choice. We may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of the few, but we cannot have both. That statement, so relevant to Brandeis's time, remains a pungent commentary on the old capitalism that we know, but it fails to address the new capitalism that knows us. It is time to reinvent that invention. Here it is. What I want you to take away, what I want you to think about today is this. We must make our choice. We may have democracy or we may have a surveillance society, but we cannot have both. A democratic surveillance society is an existential and political impossibility. Warriors for democracy will be the protagonists of these next decades, and I call upon you to be among them, to rise to the protection an advancement of humanity's best idea and to lead the way. We have a democratic information civilization to build, and there is no time to waste.
0: Thank you for that fascinating discussion. The emergence and relevancy of large tech giants makes it very important for us to think about our data where it goes, and how it is used by these firms. We are so pleased to have hosted Professor Zuboff at the Warwick Economic Summit 2021, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Westpod. Share your thoughts on this topic by using the hashtag Westpod on our social media, like Twitter and Facebook, to keep the discussion going. Next week, we bring you a Member of Parliament who served for 20 years and had an instrumental role in the UK's exit from the EU as the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to challenging perspectives on the next episode of the WestPod. The Warwick Economic Summit.
1: The Warwick Economic Summit.
0: Warwick Economic
1: Summit. Summit.